Hello friends across the internet, and welcome to the pilot episode of Trove Talk, the podcast on video games from trevortrove.com. I'm your host, Trevor Starkey, and this first episode, pilot episode, is going to be a little unique because it's just going to be me, um, but the intent of the show will be moving forward to have a, a guest on each week, one-on-one to talk about a lot of the topics I'm going to go over for myself today. Uh, the intent will always kind of be topic one is going to be talk about some gaming history, what uh, got you into gaming, and uh, you know what what has carried you through gaming over the years. Uh, topic two, favorite game of all time or a favorite game. If uh, we have returning guests, maybe you know because somebody might not want to talk about their favorite game twice, or you, the audience, might not want to talk about somebody's favorite game twice. Um, Topic three, something completely ungaming related, non-gaming. And topic four, uh, a segment I'm calling Trove Topics, which will be uh, uh, questions and topics submitted by the audience, by you. Uh, so feel free to uh, tweet at me, at Snarky Starkey, uh, or at Trove Talk on Twitter with the hashtag Trove Topics. And that's where I'm pulling these from. So, without further ado, topic one, let's get into my gaming history. I started out as a, as a wee young gamer. Uh, I definitely remember growing up, we had the Atari 2600 in my family. Uh, I don't remember if my parents got that because of me. Uh, I have a younger sister, uh, Jamie. Uh, she's two years younger than me, so I remember kind of early on when I was maybe three or four probably kind of my first gaming playing you know Pong or Pitfall those kind of being the the standard experiences uh, but then it gaming went into overdrive when my parents when my dad bought home uh, a, a Nintendo the NES the original NES um, my dad worked at this place in Phoenix called Park and Swap where you basically, it was a big old parking lot, and people on weekends would go down there, rent out a parking spot, or two, or a few, or however many, and basically sell whatever they wanted to sell, you know, within reason, obviously. Um, if you could, couldn't sell alcohol or something because you'd need a permit or whatever. My dad happened to uh, run a little company on the side that uh, he did kind of more for fun than anything, but it was also some extra spending money for him. A company called Photogenics, which he would take people's pictures and put them, like, use a heat press and put them on T-shirts or mugs or novelty things like that, calendars, posters, um, all that kind of stuff. Good, fun, cheesy, novelty items, kitsch. And he, um, he would occasionally close up, go take a break, and, and kind of purvey the other um, the other booths and whatnot, and a lot of people treated it like it was kind of a, a yard sale. So you'd get um, you'd get people out there selling random items. I will also admit that there was probably a good chance a lot of items there were probably illegally obtained. Um, it was not a necessary. It's it's not. I'm sure a lot of people were fine, upstanding citizens, but it's entirely possible that my Nintendo uh, that's sitting over there somewhere or, um, uh, 
was not legally purchased from a from a it could have fallen off a truck effectively and then my dad picked it up from a from a vendor down at parking swap um but he brought that home one day and uh we played super mario brothers and duck hunt and mega man and tetris and and it just i was hooked from we early age hooked on video games um we would have little family get-togethers and family dinners and whatnot that um uh we would kind of sit around in our game room we dubbed it the game room uh it first had a pool table and then my parents got rid of that and <clears throat> obtained the uh the like a big screen tv and and uh and video games instead so oh, those are my earliest memories and then i just yeah continued on um we were always kind of we were never my family was well off ish um uh, middle class, comfortable. We lived comfortably, but we were not like early adopters or anything like that. So I'm sure by the time I finally got a Super Nintendo, it had probably been out for a few years on the market. Um, we we did have a Genesis growing up, uh, Sega, Sega Genesis. We were so we didn't really pick a side in the console wars. Uh, I was much more of a Nintendo person, but I did have the Genesis and I had a Game Gear. Um, we got a Sega CD. Didn't go further than that though and get into the Sega Saturn or the Dreamcast. Um, stuck with Nintendo. I've had <coughs> every Nintendo system. I've had every PlayStation system. And I had an Xbox. Did not get the 360 because I was a poor college student. And then I n now have an Xbox One. So um, that's kind of the overall, all my consoles. I also played a lot of PC games growing up. Um, we, again, we weren't necessarily... Um, like right there on uh, the like Windows 95 at the the bump, but pretty early on. Uh, and I remember one like it was a very vivid Christmas memory where we walked out into uh, so we would have like Christmas in the living room, and that was where the presents were, and we would open everything. And then occasionally my parents would do like, oh, but there's one more surprise gift, you know, as parents do sometimes. And so that morning, that Christmas morning. We, uh, my sister and I, walked into the game room to see our old janky P uh, computer that uh, still used like the the floppy floppy disks, which we would use to play Wheel of Fortune and Monopoly uh, on. Uh, that had been replaced with uh, a Windows 95 PC, and the it had the screensaver going across the screen saying uh, "Merry Christmas, Trevor and Jamie." Um, so that was kind of our big gift that year, and. And that got me into things like Wolfenstein and Doom and Duke Nukem and Civilization and The Sims and um, a ton of a ton of probably really crappy um, uh, PC games as well. But I've got like yeah, I've got probably 30, 30-ish um, variations of Sims games. So like Sim Ant and Sim City and Sim Town and Sim Earth. Um, we were really big into those games and The Sims. Of course, we had every uh, every single expansion pack of The Sims and The Sims 2 eventually. Uh, I was really big into Civilization. My sister and I would play that uh, all the time um, for hours upon hours. Uh, UFO, the original uh, uh, XCOM uh, UFO Defense was uh, was a ton of fun. I don't think I ever actually owned that one, but I would go and play it at my friend's house. Um, 
Yeah, Super Nintendo came along, and that was a, a big, like that. My sister and I would play um, Super Mario World. Uh, we would all play Mario Kart. Super Mario Kart uh, would be a big thing. Um, I told the story on uh, on We the uh, uh, We the Gamer Cast <coughs> uh, with Sean Capri recently, but my dad was a pilot. Uh, and I flew a little bit growing up too. I learned how to fly a plane when I was ten. Never got licensed or anything, but um, my grandfather owns a plane, and so yeah, like my family is filled with pilots. So Pilot Wings for Super Nintendo was a big one for us, and that was a great uh, launch title um, that we picked up very early on. Whenever we did end up getting the Super Nintendo, and then my sister and I would get my dad Flight Simulator every year for like that was his either father's day present or christmas present or something like that it was one like one of our big gifts to him every year growing up uh and he would hop in the planes and and fly us around the country and and go like he'd point out landmarks over chicago even though they're you know early 90s mid 90s very uh, polygonal landmarks um but yeah that was so video games were were certainly an element of bonding uh, among my family, even though my mom, like even though my mom didn't play it with us ever really, um, she would still sit around um, when she wasn't telling me to go out and, and have fun with friends. Um, uh, she was more or less receptive to me playing video games. She always wanted me to have more of a social life. My sister uh, did have a social life, uh, whereas I was the introvert. The I sat around playing video games. Uh, or occasionally I would go and play video games with friends, and then my mom would say she wanted me to go and, and uh, um, you know, go play outside or something like that, which I did plenty of that, too. I played basketball and soccer and stuff growing up. I I was not, like, horrible in the sense of never never getting out and, uh, and just always being glued to the TV. Um, but it's certainly ironic now that video games and my involvement in video game communities like the Kind of Funny community or or uh, uh, going to events like PAX uh, and whatnot, which I'm leaving for in about 12 hours. Um, all of those uh, those events are what get me out and, are, and have me being social and it all is all because of video games. So that's a fun little kind of dig back to my mom uh, a little bit when... Uh, when she's like, "No, you should go. You should go spend time with friends." I'm like, "I am going to spend time with friends. They're just friends from all around the country, and I have to fly to other cities to go see them." Really, um, so that's uh, uh, video games. Uh, I I played, you know, like when the N64 came around and and uh, and whatnot. Um, I would go. I have great memories playing with like this. I had this group of like five or six guy friends in. Uh, kind of all through elementary school and middle school and we kind of started going our separate ways come high school but we would always play like we would always go to somebody's house and play GoldenEye um, and uh, and Mario Kart and Smash Brothers and, and stuff like that we that was kind of our our little multiplayer local multiplayer phase of life um, was that uh, definitely got I'm sure I'm sure I've played more games and played and forgotten more games than I will ever um, than I could ever fathom to remember because uh, of stuff like Blockbuster and demo discs uh, growing up, um, like PC Gamer demo discs. I, somebody posted a, 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 a like an image of a Chex Mix game 
which I like immediately remembered having poured many hours into it. And it was basically like a, a Wolfenstein clone or a Wolfenstein uh, like edit uh, uh, to be to include like Chex Mix. And I don't remember. I don't even remember how we got that game. If it was like a um, like a pack in in a bag or something, but I definitely played it for hours and hours and hours. Um, uh, so yeah, weird weird stuff like that. I would have uh, my best friend growing up, who was not in that group of core guy friends. Um, uh, he we've been we, like I've known him pretty much since I was born, um, and we've fallen out of touch when uh, when we both were in high school basically because um, he lived a few cities away and so just life got busy I see him every now and then we're f Facebook friends um, but we would uh, because we were you know cities apart growing up and cities apart I mean like he lived half an hour away but when you're you know eight half an hour away you're you are beholden to your your parents so um, we would go, we would spend weekends together. Like he'd come over to my house and, and we'd hang out for the weekend or I'd go over to his house and, and stay there for the weekend. And it was pretty much just nonstop gaming sessions. Um, we would play and he was he was another one that was a big PC gamer. So yeah, we would just play a ton of stuff together. Um, he had the PlayStation before I did. And so with Final Fantasy being one of my favorite series, um, which we'll get into in a little bit, um, he, uh, uh, he had Final Fantasy VII before I did, and so I longed for the the weekends where I get to go hang out with him, and we get to play Final Fantasy VII before I ended up getting my own PlayStation. Um, but we would also just yeah spend spend hours upon hours upon hours playing playing computer games, or he'd be playing a computer game, I'd be playing um, you know Super Nintendo or something, and we would have Jimmy Buffett just playing nonstop. Uh, Margaritaville, Cheeseburger in Paradise, just singing that. I don't know why that was like the song that we insisted on playing every time, but it was. We were huge Jimmy Buffett fans for like those two songs growing up. And uh, yeah, good fun times. Uh, he was the friend that introduced me to Star Wars for the first time. We, we uh, one weekend, we just kind of sat and watched uh, through all of Star Wars. And I was probably, I don't know, like nine or ten at this point so I was I was late to the Star Wars game but immediately hooked uh, and I have my friend Vinny to thank for that um, so now we're getting into kind of the PlayStation um, 2 uh, GameCube and Xbox era which is for me tied to basically the end of high school um, I, PlayStation 2 was the was the first system of that era we had. We had the N64 as well, um, for, but that was kind of the the bridging the gap. Um, but yeah, PlayStation 2, we got, um, uh, which, uh, you know, we were one of the hundreds of millions of people that got it because it also doubled as a DVD player for the family. And so uh, uh, that was my, my first console of that generation and continued kind of my love of the the new PlayStation thing and this was before you know the internet and before I knew well, I guess it wasn't before the internet but it was before I was super invested in what was going on in the industry so I didn't know that the only reason PlayStation existed was because of the falling out between PlayStation and Nintendo all I knew was PlayStation had like the Final Fantasy games that I really enjoyed now and that I had loved growing up so PlayStation was where I would go for those games and then I would pick up the other games like 
Grand Theft Auto, uh, obviously, was, you know, an iconic uh, entry for that generation. Um, high school graduation, I actually won my Xbox. Uh, they did this thing, and I think it's kind of a common thing, called Project Graduation, where it's basically... They take all the students and lock them into a in a in a building or something for a night uh, after graduation, so to discourage people going out and drinking and driving and being stupid. Um, wouldn't have been a problem for me, but it, uh, I went to Project Graduation. We had it at this local small theme parkish thing called Castles and Coasters here, which has uh, castles and uh, like that's a big arcade as well as like a mini golf course and coasters, roller coasters. And so we were basically locked in there uh, for the whole night, and they did this whole—they did a raffle. So everybody got like 15 raffle tickets, and you could put your tickets in one of any of the prizes. And like the biggest prize was like a 32-inch flat-screen TV or something like that. I don't remember. Um, way more impressive back then. Uh, this is 2003 uh, than it is now, but. Um, I was like, oh, everybody's putting their tickets in for that. I'm going to play the odds. So I put a few tickets in for a gift, a Best Buy gift card, and then I put the rest of my tickets in for the Xbox. And uh, figured I wouldn't win either of them. I ended up winning both of them. And they went through and kind of picked out uh, one at a time. I won the Best Buy gift card. And I was like, oh, sweet. It's like a $50 gift card. I'll buy a PlayStation game for that. And then I won the Xbox. And they were like, okay, well, you only get one prize, so which one do you want? And I was like, I'm taking the Xbox, thank you. Uh, so that was why I had an Xbox, uh, and the only, because I was probably so already attached to the PlayStation at that time, the only games I ended up really ever playing on Xbox, um, were the, um, Knights of the Old Republic games, which were phenomenal games on that system, um, but yeah, it was, like, I had those, and I had a couple of the Simpsons games, but for the most part, um, uh, the Xbox was the prize that I didn't really ever delve into. Uh, and then, so college starts, I'm a poor college student. My sister, that Christmas, ended up getting me a GameCube, because um, it was like, it was, the GameCube was out well late enough that it was like the $99 deal. Um, and I think this was all that Christmas. It may, I may be jumbling up years a little bit. But that was the first generation I had all three systems, basically. Um, uh, and I played the GameCube. I loved games like um, Wind Waker, Legend of Zelda Wind Waker. I loved games like um, uh, was, uh, Thousand Year Door, Paper Mario. I was a big fan of like Super Mario RPG growing up again because of Squaresoft and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I, that was I, I had all those. I had all the, the systems that that generation, but. My, I have a far bigger collection of PlayStation 2 games than anything else. Um, and so when I was then on my own, uh, I was like, okay, well, PlayStation 3 or the Xbox 360, I don't really play shooters all that much these days, so I went with PlayStation 3 uh, and then just never got around to uh, 360. Um, I did end up getting a Wii at some point because everyone needed to get a Wii. Uh, I played it for a handful of years, um, enjoyed the Wii enough-ish. Uh, again, like my favorite games on the, the system are probably the Mario Galaxies and uh, um, <laughs> like the Zack and Wiki's treasure thing was, I thought that was like a good use of the waggle controls um, and like the Paper Mario games, but uh, I had nobody to play 
stuff like Smash with or Mario Kart with these days, so um, I have those games, but I never really played them. And by the time I finally got the Zelda games, um, both Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword, I'd already long since pack, packed up my, my Wii and had moved on to specifically playing uh, all the franchises on my PlayStation 3. Then uh, graduated college, the new this generation of consoles came out, and I um, bought my PlayStation 4 pretty near launch, got the Xbox One a little bit later, uh, around when the Sunset, Sunset Overdrive bundle came out, um, and I got my Wii U last year, um, and regret that, because I've written about that before, um, but I got it because my girlfriend at the time uh, had some friends who enjoyed video games enough, so we, we talked about getting that and inviting people over to play Smash and Mario Kart and, and all the, the local multiplayer games that Nintendo still does really well. Uh, and then that just never happened. Uh, we broke up a few months ago, so it's been a, it's just been collecting dust, just like the Wii before it. Um, oh, all through this, I've also had all the handhelds. Uh, Game Boy, um, a big, uh, big Super Mario Land. Um, the uh, Tetris on Game Boy was a huge one. The Pokemon games, I've had every Pokemon game. Um, yeah. Uh, Game Gear was fun for Mortal Kombat, fun for road trips and, and Sonic and stuff. Um, the PSP was my mobile Final Fantasy system, as, uh, as I've talked about um, in the past, and then now the Vita, so uh, and the 3DS. I, I even just got a new 3DS because I lost my old one when I went to uh, um, LA for Let's Play Live. I just left it in the seat of a plane. Completely forgot about it. Didn't realize it until the end of that weekend when I was back home and unpacking. I was like, oh, shoot. Oops. But I figured I wanted to pick that up again and have something to, to play on the on the road when I'm not playing my Vita. So, pick that up. Um, so yeah, that's more or less my gaming history. Um, it's a thing that I kind of always had to... I mean, outside of like a certain group of friends... Um, Frustratingly, always kind of had to hide, which is why I love going to these events now, like things like PAX and things like the kind of funny events, because I'm surrounded by people who also love those things, and I can talk about those things, and that is, you know, it's, it has been a lifelong passion of mine, and and so, um, like I remember being ridiculed for it because I wrote an essay in uh, in high school. I wrote an essay basically talking about. Like, we were asked to write about a collection of ours, and I wrote about my collection of video games, and how I attribute video games to me being the person I am. I think video games, um, uh, like, I, I read a lot in video games, I have an appreciation for some storytelling because of the kinds of video games that I played, um, yeah, and so, like, the, just, video games helped make me who I am, and when I wrote that and other students had to like proofread it and stuff um, like this one of the not quite popular girls but popular enough girls um, uh, basically like yeah just ridiculed me for it and uh, so it left a sour taste in my mouth and clearly it has, it has stuck the last 15 years or uh, it's still still there so I very much love video games uh, I started there's no there's no like 
switch that got flipped when I started really investing in the industry side of things and really paying attention to what was coming out. I've been, I'm sure I've been going to IGN back since it's N64 days for wikis and, and guides and stuff like that. Well, back before they were wikis, back when they were strategy guides. Um, uh, and, and I'm sure, like, I remember, <laughs> I remember, like, going there all the time for, like, the babe of the day back when they had the IGN babe section. Um, so I'm sure I was also checking out the video game stuff at the time. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I, it's definitely my, my interest in getting into the industry side of things really started when I went to the first PlayStation experience. I went, had a great time, uh, sat up front at the keynote and was crying tears of joy by being surrounded by people. Didn't talk to like pretty much anybody at that event. Um, that was where I did first meet, uh, Greg and Colin from kind of funny at the time IGN. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I had a great time there. I came back, I did some writing, uh, on the experience. I kicked up my own version of or the, like the, the beta version or the, the 1.0 version of Trevor Trove was a blog spot back then, uh, where I wrote about my experience at PlayStation experience, but I was also using it because of, uh, uh, my local interest or my interest in the local theater scene. I was also using it for theater reviews at the time. So I was doing a Trevor Trove 1.0 was a mix of that. Uh, then I got when the, when the kind of funny guys broke off and created kind of funny, I got, uh, like I followed them and I was, uh, uh, they like uh, they inspired me as they've inspired many people to to really think oh yeah we like you can do this thing so um, fast forward a few months I went to kind of funny live um, I appeared on their games cast as a test to myself of hey can you do this can you hold your own with these guys who are like titans of industry effectively in the in the games industry. Um, they've been doing it for years. They've been there for a decade, basically. Um, how can you? How will you fare uh, if you're having a conversation with them? And I walked away from that feeling really good. And so I, I hemmed and hawed for a little bit longer. Um, I very much. I look at I look at the industry as a whole, and I see too many people like me in the industry. Um, and so I, for a long time, thought. We don't need another one of me. I don't need to. I don't need to contribute. Uh, I don't need to add to to that. I don't need to be another, um, you know, early thirties uh, middle class white guy. Uh, I I would love to see more representation from women and people of color in the industry. And so, for a long time, I thought I would rather not go for it and let somebody else have that opportunity. Uh, and then ultimately I came back and landed on, I can't change who I am, but if I make it into the industry, I can hopefully be an ally to those other voices that I want to see in the industry uh, and those other perspectives. And so ultimately I said, screw it, I'm going to go for it. And so Trevor Trove 2.0 launched uh, a little over a year ago, August 29th, I was getting my oil changed at, uh, at my car dealership and logged in while this was all ha uh, happening, logged in, created a, a Squarespace account, and by the time I had a car, I had uh, a basic template for Trevor Trove. Didn't do too much those first days. Um, uh, 
Uh, the first few months, I think there were less than a dozen uh, entries, um, just kind of writing as I went. And then I finally knuckled down and picked up uh, the the trend from my friend Alex O'Neill over at irrationalpassions.com. Uh, his Don't Break the Chain, where you just do it every day. You, you don't break the chain, you just write every day. And so I started doing that on November 1st. Um, wrote every day, published every day, pretty much every day. There were a couple days where I got, I lost, um, like my internet went down, power outages and crap like that, so I didn't end up publishing those days, but I did publish a second article the following day to make up for it. So, um, pu uh, published pretty much every day, 304 uh, articles. I just celebrated uh, day 300, which is where I announced that I'm going to be doing this, uh, this podcast itself. And uh, ultimately realized that I need to, writing is great, but writing is what this industry was 10 years ago. Um, and it's not what this industry is now. So I'm going to try and diversify my skill set a little bit by doing this show, by doing hopefully more video content, um, while still writing and keeping, uh, keeping the writing aspect going. Um, so yeah, that's my gaming history. Topic one, all wrapped up. Yay! Only took about 30 minutes. <laughs> okay, topic two, favorite game. Final Fantasy VI. I've said this many a times. Um, it was Final Fantasy III. Uh, originally when I played it on the Super Nintendo, I was a huge fan of Final Fantasy II. And Final, the original Final Fantasy on Nintendo, I don't think I actually played until later in life. I don't think I had it growing up. Um, I don't I, I don't recall. I have it now. I know I have the NES cartridge now. I just saw it the other day when I was going through old boxes and stuff. Um, but Final F Fantasy 2 was certainly the, the, the Final Fantasy that um, lasted, that made a, the, the most lasting effect on my mind as a first Final Fantasy game. And Final Fantasy 3, or 6, um, cemented my love of the series. Um, got a whole bunch of reasons for why. So, kind of going through, point by point. Um, story. Uh, I didn't realize when I was 10 or however old I was when that game came out how big a story can be told in video games. And that is the, the story of Final Fantasy VI brings these, it, it's effectively Star Wars, basically, because you've got the Rebel Alliance and the Returners, and you've got the Empire in the Empire, um, and the Empire's, they've got Vector as their capital city, much like Coruscant, basically trying to take over the world, um, and you've got the Emperor, Emperor Gestal, uh, is kind of the, you know, the head, just like Emperor Palpatine, and then you've got Kefka, who is kind of the, turns out, a little bit more puppet mastery, kind of pulling the strings behind it, and so uh, he's not a direct uh, correlation to Vader, but he's certainly one of the most iconic characters of the game, uh, just like Vader is one of the most iconic characters in the, in, as the right-hand man of Star Wars. Um, right out the gate, you start, you're this, this girl, and it's it 
it's certainly a trope nowadays in storytelling and video games especially where you're playing as an amnesiatic character who doesn't remember it's a great storytelling it's a trope for a reason um, playing as someone with amnesia means you're learning everything about this character as the character is relearning things about the character that's why it that's why it's such a uh, a prominent feature in movies and and uh, and video games and and the like because it 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 gives you basically a get out of jail free card where you wouldn't tell somebody um, you you can tell them exposition to bring the audience up to speed um, without it seeming like you're telling this character something of course they already know if you're playing as an amnesiac um, you didn't know you've forgotten this thing so you need that exposition kind of delivered to you as well so uh, it's certainly a well played out trope nowadays but it was one of the first instances I ever experienced uh, of of a story like that and uh, immediately uh, Tara uh, is is introduced and um, she's a powerful force from the Empire but uh, she's her her power is her, her her the control over her from the Empire is broken and and she gets kind of rescued by the returners and and the Alliance and and uh, and Locke uh, the famed treasure hunter, um, thief, roguish thief, but he likes the term treasure hunter, uh, and they kind of can they go on a quest and they in uh, meet just the one of the richest cast of characters in any game I think I've ever played, um, which is the so the story, big story, um, and what I love about it before I get into the characters. What I love about the story is that in Final Fantasy VI, the bad guy wins. The world ends. The, the bad guy wants to destroy the world, and he does. And so the whole first act of the game, the first half of the game, you play in the, the world of balance. Kefka destroys that world, and you have to pick up the pieces in the world of ruin uh, for the second half of the game. And that the audacity of a game to do something like that blew my little ten-year-old mind, or whenever I was playing it. Um, it it amazed me that you could tell that kind of story. Like, I'd never seen the bad guys win in that sense. Um, I don't remember if I had seen Star Wars at this point or not, uh, where that fell in the, in the mix of things, but, um, like, it was insane that the bad guys won destroyed the world, but that wasn't the end. Like, there was still hope in that world, um, as battered and bruised as it was, and you go through, you recollect your, your cast, and the, the, the idea that there were hidden characters in the game, or that you could, um, you could complete the game in that world of, of ruin by not collecting everybody, uh, was not like recollecting your party or that you could lose party members based on your actions at the end of the the world of balance section um, I was very thankful for guides back then and like strategy guides and things like Nintendo Power because I would have probably been devastated if um, I didn't know that if you hung around and waited Shadow would show up um, 
because I would not I would not have wanted to leave Shadow on the floating continent to to perish in uh, in that world. Um, so yeah, it was it told a story that had, that I had never seen in any medium before, and uh, I still cherish it very much for that. I I feel like um, very few stories have ever have have tried to uh, to tell that it's it's a story told on a grand scale but filled with intimate moments between your your cast of characters you've got this beautiful small blossoming love story between Locke and Celeste you've got um, Strago and realm the family dynamic the the little one upsmanship rivalry of the grand the the fuddy-duddy grandfather and and the child artist who you can find secretly you can find through secret stories his effect is is shadow's daughter um if you sleep in the inns with shadow as a member of your party you'll get like these extra little flashback cutscenes um where you see kind of his past and the regrets that he has that led up to him leaving his daughter realm in uh in the care of, of strago um you have the 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 Figaro twin brothers, Edgar and uh, Sabin, Sabine, uh, who one of them, only one of them could be king, and so uh, they left it to a, a coin toss where Edgar cheated the system with his two-headed coin, uh, and, and Sabin went off to become his martial artist self. Uh, so just filled with rich characters in this world, um, all of whom get great moments to shine. The ending of the game is probably one of my favorite video game endings ever because you get a 20 to 30 minute cutscene, effectively, uh, giving one, giving each character one last moment to shine throughout uh, throughout this uh, you know 16 bit cutscene. So it's it's. That's the first hint I probably ever had of what Square would become in terms of their emphasis and overemphasis these days on um, uh, the spectacle of uh, telling a story and and the the images that they can create because of that. Um, characters, the 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 richness of the characters. Um, Always has stood out for me in that game, uh, and that this is these are the Final Fantasies back when you could still name all your characters. So I would of course rename all the characters after myself and my friends at the time and family members and whatnot. Um, so I would I would be playing these roles with all these characters, kind of having them role play as my friends. And so you know I'd put myself in as Locke and I'd put the girl that I had the crush on at the time as Celeste. Um, and let that kind of that love story um, blossom. Um, the Kefka is my favorite villain, easily of any of the the Final Fantasies, because he's effectively the Joker. Um, he is the the deranged clown who uh, was basically a science experiment gone awry. The same science experiment that. Um, ultimately created Celeste as a Magitech warrior in that game. And this is, like, I feel like this is 
like all incredibly cursory and like it's one line in there or one extra thing to to get that backstory on him but his brain got fried by Sid doing an experiment years earlier and it just left him a little off and so you see him do despicable things like poison entire kingdoms um, against the the wishes and and the wishes of other generals in uh, the empire he's the madman he is the clown madman um, with the horrifying 16-bit laugh uh, he again like he 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 wins and he rules for a year while you're unconscious in that world of of ruin and while you're recovering while you're bringing your um, so your your party back together so he got everything he ever wanted and it's you don't you don't see that at, to that level in video games um, all that much and so that was and and I certainly hadn't seen it uh, at that time it was always like Final Fantasy 4 um, you had Golbez who was, turned out was being um, uh, kind of manipulated by the thing from the moon, Zeramus, I think, Zemus, I don't even remember. Um, that was the other thing. Like, it was a very straightforward, Kefka was crazy, and used some magic statues to take over the world. Um, there wasn't creatures from the moon from, like, Final Fantasy um, four. There wasn't aliens like Genova um, from uh, Final Fantasy seven. Um, or people, creatures from other dimensions from Final Fantasy IX, all of which are still um, like my those are my four favorite Final Fantasies. Um, but the the weird steampunk magic aesthetic was the most one of the most grounded Final Fantasy games, um, and I think it stands the test of time as a result of that. Um, one of the other, one of the most amazing elements of it, and I, I've been listening to a ton of Final Fantasy music uh, this last week, um, the soundtrack of Final Fantasy VI is probably hands down my favorite of any video game soundtrack uh, ever. Uh, Nobuo Uematsu, Uematsu uh, just knocks it out of the park. Every character has their own distinct themes, um, the opera scene in Final Fantasy VI, uh, where Celeste goes undercover as the opera star Maria to trick Setzer into uh, kidnapping her. Um, such a like that. That was probably an iconic moment that I don't real. I didn't realize at the time. Set me on the path to do theater. Um, but you you play, you see this you know you see ten uh, ten minutes of an opera, um, which you're led to believe there's there is an entire opera probably out there that is Maria and Draco, um, and the music that undercuts um, the the operetta there Celeste's theme is just 
Like I, I could listen to it and I would listen to it even in its 16 bit form and get choked up and get emotional. Uh, and, and with what Square has done since with their distance, distant world series and, and putting in full orchestrations to a lot of their music, um, I could listen to that and, and I do listen to it and will just cry um, because of just how beautiful the music flows together. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you'll have, you've got something like Kefka's theme, which uh, is just so, it's, there's, there's a lot of staccato into it, and I get images of him toying with the Empire as uh, the Puppet Master. I, I get images of him with his dancing marionettes in that song. Um, you have Locke's theme, which doubles kind of as the Returner's theme, which every time I listen to it just brings a smile to my face because you've got, it just has, it's, it's a great, uplifting, we're going to win kind of tune to it. Um, so yeah, the music is just standout upon standout upon standout theme uh, in that song. Uh, Shadow is like... Start, it's it's very simple and it's kind of whistly, um, kind of tw it's very twangy. It's very much like a lone, a lone gunman kind of western kind of character for this weird ninja assassin um, who used to be basically a Bonnie and Clyde type of guy. Uh, he was a robber uh, and and uh, has lost his partner and has turned to just a, a, a life where he is just going to be a lone, a lone wolf. And he gets caught up in this, this party of, uh, of misfits and vagabonds that is your team in, um, in Final Fantasy. So it, like his theme is just hauntingly beautiful at times. So yeah, just music all across. I, I encourage anybody to, to listen to it. Uh, there's a song on the Distant Worlds 3 soundtrack that is basically a character theme medley from uh, Final Fantasy VI, and that's what I've been listening to uh, all week this week, just kind of gearing up for, for this video and to, to talk about this in particular segment, because um, it's just it's sublime music, um, especially for what it was at the time. Uh, 16-bit Super Nintendo game, incredible harmonies, incredible. What's great about video game music is the limitations of the systems made it so you pretty much had to focus on uh, on the melodies, on very memorable melodies. That's why you have. That's why so many video game themes are so iconic. That's why you have Mario, and that's why you have The Legend of Zelda. That's why you have Tetris as the Final Fantasy theme itself as these very iconic pieces because they're almost all melody. But with Super Nintendo, you also get to through you got to throw in a little bit of harmony there. So it started getting it it got a little bit more complex, but not so overwhelmingly complex that everything became drowned out and the melody got lost. That's why I don't think we have as many iconic um, soundtracks these days. So much of it is background underscoring music um, that that just doesn't have that 
catch to it, that that hook to it, like uh, like these original, these early uh, system games did, like Final Fantasy VI did. So yeah, music stand out in the in the game. The battle system of the game um, is one of the is is it's the last it's one of the last um, one of the last ones that I really um, cherished uh, out of the Final Fantasy series. I love the materia system from Final Fantasy VII, and I love the the um, equipment system from from nine, where your gear basically would have spells and stuff attached to it. But um, the combat system, it's the classic active time battle system that I love, um, turn-based combat, so you had time to strategize and figure out, okay, I need to take that guy out first, um, and then I can then I can focus on, on these guys. Um, and I, I can have my heavy hitter really get that guy, I can have my magic uh, uh, user get this. Um, it's also, it was also one of the last games where it, it bridged the gap between every character being interchangeable, like in uh, in Final Fantasy VII and beyond, where um, like with the materia system, you could put whatever spell set on any of those characters, and they basically effectively would be the same um, uh, same person. Uh, and the the very unique uh, skill sets of something like Final Fantasy IV, where all of your characters were um, were very predetermined and predefined, so you couldn't customize. It was you've got Edge as your ninja, you've got Cecil as your paladin, um, you've got Kane as your dragoon, and they're going to learn skills and spells at certain levels, and there's nothing you can do about it. This gave you every character had their own individuality, so you had Locke who could steal or mug based on his equipment. You had um, uh, Stra uh, Strago who could use the blue magic, he was the blue mage of the game. You had um, Shadow again who was the, the assassin. You had uh, Sien who was the, um, the samurai with his uh, skilled swords. So everybody had their they're special, basically. And then the magic system, the Esper system, uh, was where you could kind of give everybody everything if you wanted, and I often did. I would spend hours and hours and hours grinding um, uh, and getting pretty much all the characters with all of the spells set. Um, so that when I decided to go and take on Kefka in the final battle, I had um, everyone armed to the gills for their for those final combats um, so yeah it was it was a great system where uh, you equip an esper and you can use that esper and, and do whatever that summon uh, is gonna do whether it's damage uh, damage the enemy cure you give a special status effect whatever the case may be um, and you got the action points or the yeah I think they were action points I think it was AP um, but you got the points at the end of a level in addition to the experience points and those action points would level up the magic imbued in that esper and bring it onto your characters uh, at varying levels based on how strong the esper was, how weak the spell was um, so you could get, you know, you can get an esper like I think Bismarck later in the game I think it was would give you like 
fire, ice, and lightning at um, or thunder back then um, at uh, like 20 times. So you only need five action points to get to 100%. Um, and so you could usually crank that out in a battle or two, and you would have fire, ice, and, and thunder on that character. So I loved... I love kind of the every every character still feels like they're important and has their own skill set, um, but you can also beef them all up with the same kinds of skills. Uh, it wasn't you didn't have just a mage character anymore. You had um, you had Edgar the me the mechanist who could use his tools and could use the Ultima spell if uh, if you wanted, or you could have Sabin and his Blitz martial artist power and him using him being your healer if you wanted. Um, so it was a, a great mix of of kind of the old school and what would become kind of the the standard operating procedure of well every character can do everything if you put in enough time. Um, so yeah, those those were uh, uh, that that's pretty much why I love Final Fantasy VI. I think the art style, because it's a still a sprite-based game from that era, um, I think it holds up in this day and age, whereas other Final Fantasies, um, like seven, eight, nine, and and so on, with their uh, the shift to 3D, you lose, uh, you lose something on. They're harder to go back to, whereas this, um, the two-bit style, might be a little slower, than modern gaming and than we're used to, but it's it doesn't to me at least it doesn't look bad. It looks it's great. There's a great story there, great characters, great music, an endlessly replayable game in my mind. Um, I could talk about it for hours and hours, because um, yeah, it's just uh, it, there's just fun little secrets throughout that game. Um, fun little just moments great moments like the character of Gogo one of the completely optional characters that you can only find in the world of ruin um, I love the the hints that that character may or may not be um, Setzer's friend Daryl who uh, you get her airship in in the world of ruin that's that's how you end up getting around the world because she lost it or she like they raced around the world and and she disappeared and he all he found was like her the wrecked craft and repaired it and and hid it away but you get you get just the slightest little hints that she could be that gogo could be daryl and gogo a mimic um can the i didn't discover until i probably had the game for years um that you could customize what you could basically give gogo any of the other people's skills you could have Gogo be have the tools of Edgar. You could have uh, Gogo have the the blitz of, of Sabin. You could have Gogo steal, um, and you could have Gogo use magic. Uh, you could set those in the customization menu, and I just like it. It when I discovered that, I was like, oh my god, how have I not known this before? This is amazing. This is game a game changer um, for using that character. Uh, so yeah, like little things like that that uh, that made that game endlessly endlessly fun for me 
I love. I go back to it every every few years when I can. I have it on pretty much every system it's ever been released on, um, with the exception being like mobile. I haven't. I haven't purchased. I've. I have not spent the fifteen dollars that Square continues to want to put it on my Android. Um, I also don't like the the redesign they did of the sprite characters for the like the chibi redesign. Um, I just I'm I'm a purist in the, the original sense. They're not ugly and and they get a lot more hate than than they probably deserve. But I don't I didn't see any reason to to make the change. So I can do without it. Um, but yeah, I have it on like PlayStation. I think the the um, Game Boy Advance version is probably the definitive one to play if you get the chance. Um, uh, as the cartridge-based version of the game, it doesn't have the weird little loading hiccups that um, that like the PlayStation One versions uh, version of the game, which you can also get as the PSN Classic on like PlayStation Three or or the Vita or the PSP, um, because those are all emulations of the optical disc, the, the optical disc, the CD version of the game. Um, pretty much every time you go into a battle or go into a new screen, there's like just a, a extra little hiccup or two of loading that you didn't get with um, cartridge media. So you didn't get that with the Super Nintendo, and you don't get it with the the, uh, the Game Boy Advance version. Plus, they added in uh, a handful of extra little features in the Game Boy Advance version, so um, and extra extra dungeons, extra espers. Um, and it's just a great, great on-the-go game. Um, all around, yeah, I think that's. I, I think I can. I think I can leave it there. I think I'm comfortable leaving it there. Final Fantasy VI, my favorite game of all time. Um, a, a game that helped get me to where where I am because um, it got me interested in in so many. In the the bigger world that video games can be, um, it it taught me how grandiose stories uh, video games can tell. It taught me how great music video game music can can be and create. Um, and yeah, it got me into theater in in some subliminal way. Segway, Trevor way, Trove way. Yeah, there's not really a a good transition there, but my completely non-gaming topic is uh, my love of theater. Uh, aside from video games, it's the other, it has been the other big passion of my life. And for really about 10 years, um, I devoted, I, I basically set myself on a career path to, uh, I wanted to run a theater company. That was what I, I rewind. We got my gaming history earlier. Um, back in high school, I was in. I've, I've been a. I was a musician for many years. I uh, I started playing uh, in band in fourth grade. Uh, I was a clarinetist for a year because when I was in fourth grade, you couldn't just go to drums. You had to play a woodwind instrument or a horn um, if you wanted. You had to do that for a year first. So I played clarinet for a year, and then I immediately switched to drums in fifth grade and played drums and learned music. So I played um, like. The xylophone. I played marimba. I played bells. I um, played timpani. Um, I was. Other people just wanted to play and like bang on the drums. I was the musician. I was the the percussionist. I was not a drummer. I was a percussionist. That's the that's the way I would put it. Because um, I was also I was the, I was the one, uh, 
that would go and play for the orchestra as well. I would play the band concerts and I would get uh, get recruited to play the orchestra concerts where I would you know bounce around and play bass drum, snare drum, timpani, xylophone. Uh, I played. Uh, I I I always enjoy telling. I went to Disneyland, got to play in Disneyland with my middle school orchestra. We played My Heart Will Go On in the little Mary Poppins-esque um, uh, little cafe thing, open open air cafe off of Main Street. Um, I distinctly remember being being the drummer and playing My Heart Will Go On time and time again for that year. Um, I will never not think of um, having played that song when I whenever I hear that song or whenever I see Titanic. So, uh, so yeah, I was I was a percussionist, and um, in high school, I was in marching band. I played uh, played with the orchestra there, and one of my friends in marching band did this big push one year to get a bunch of us to go and join the choir. And so my sophomore year, I joined men's choir, and uh, I was, it, so I did that on like it was two days a week, kind of before and after school kind of stuff, and I uh, would go and and singing concerts there, and then I uh, had a good enough time doing it that junior year I joined the varsity choir, and I was uh, a bass in choir, and that was also the year, every year they would do like, the theater program would s- switch off, so at one year there would be a musical, then the other year there'd be like a Shakespeare or classic play, and so this happened to be the year they were doing a musical, we did Oklahoma, and basically if you were a guy who was willing to go and sing, uh, you got cast in the chorus. So I was in the chorus of Oklahoma, and that was the first play I did, play musical. Um, I, because of my percussive background and my rhythmic background, I was one of, I think, four guys that could learn the ragtime number with its little tap dancing stuff um, for uh, Kansas City. And so I would... Uh, I got to be a featured dancer in the show as well as a chorus member. I had a lot of fun doing it. And so when my senior year rolled around, I started doing theater more as well. Uh, I did, in addition to band and choir and everything, I was I was kind of the jack-of-all-trades in the arts. Uh, and so I did You Can't Take It With You, and I did Midsummer Night's Dream. I was in both those shows and minor supporting roles kind of thing. And I had a great time doing that. And so I... When I went and started at ASU for college, I spent a year uh, not really sure what I wanted to do. I started out as a computer systems engineering major because I thought, hey, I like video games. Maybe I'll, I'll want to make video games. Did not want to make video games. I would much rather play video games. Um, I the, the most complex video game I made in that year of uh, computer systems engineering was a game of, t- of tic-tac-toe. Uh, I programmed tic-tac-toe in... I don't remember if it was Java or C++, but uh, I did it, I got an A, and then I was like, nope, I don't want to do this anymore. So I switched to theater, because that was where I was having more fun. I was working with the sketch comedy troupe my first year at ASU, kind of uh, on the side as, as an extracurricular. And uh, and I was like, but I'm, I'm savvy enough to know that there's not going to be a career for me in theater, so I'm going to also get a business degree and maybe I'll run my own theater someday. That's what I'll do. And that was kind of what I set myself on a, on a path for. And I did that for years. Um, ended up graduating with my theater degree first. And even then, this was 2008 now, fall, uh, spring of 2008, I graduated. I said, screw it, I'm not going back. I got my, I got my degree, I'm done. 
then the economy collapsed and I was like, screw it, I'm going back, I'm going to go get that business degree. So I ended up getting my um, uh, a Bachelor of Arts in Theater and a Bachelor of Science in Business Management, um, worked in the solar field for a couple years doing data management stuff, but then I was like, I need to get back into theater. Um, I was, uh, all through college, I was the, um, like, I would, I would do pretty much anything. Because I wanted to run my own company, I was like, okay, well, I, I want to act, I want to direct, I want to be able to build sets, I want to be able to design lights, I want to be able to design sound. Um, the only things I, the only thing I didn't do was costume. I, I, I always deferred to people with better, better talents than I did in, uh, in costume design. Um, but I got to run, I got to work as a student worker. I was, uh, I worked in the, the scene shop building sets. I was a carpenter for our, uh, our theater company or the, the student theater, the, the main stage theater, the department theater. And then I also, um, became the, uh, the, the head of the student theater for a couple of years where we basically were given a space by the department and we were given free reign effectively to, to produce shows in there. Um, we were given like a, a small few thousand dollar budget every, uh, every year and we would take submissions and invite people to um, submit shows that they wanted to produce and direct and we would put them on for you know a weekend or so. Um, and I had a great time doing it. It was basically, I, I got to do what I was dreaming of doing in, I got to put that in practice in school. Um, I had a, 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 I was, I loved my theater classes so much more than my business classes at the time because in theater classes everybody knew everybody. It was, it was a very intimate affair, um, uh, sometimes too intimate, but in my business classes I was just a, a, another one of 500 people and so I didn't, like none of my teachers knew me. Uh, the, I, like I hated group projects because it was always okay you you five people are going to work together and really only one of you is actually going to do any work and that one was usually me um, I I freely tell people that I did way more work for my theater classes than I ever did for my business management classes I would have to write a 20 page paper on theater history compared to a seven page paper that five of us were writing again five of us were writing in um, in in my business classes, so it was it it was laughable how the the caliber of student that comes out of the AS, the ASUWP Carey School of Business is not to be flaunted. It's not to be touted. Um, it is those are the people who are managers for uh, I don't know like insurance companies and. And WalMarts and stuff like that—they're not. You're not getting cream of the crop if you're getting a WP Carey school because they just crank them out. And there's no attention to what people are getting. You're getting mostly people who are who who um, most of the graduates from that program uh, got through that program on the backs of other people, the the really hard workers, and that sucks. And I was also the one in that whole program who wanted to. Uh, uh, I was like the only one who wanted to do nonprofit arts management. Um, I was I was a black sheep in both of my worlds because I was in my business classes. I was the one saying no, we should we should support the community. Like we should, yes, you com companies should give back to the community they serve. Um, it's not you know not just for PR. It's it's just good business 
to support your community um, and you know not just try and engulf all your profits and then in my theater classes I was the one sitting there saying um, society doesn't owe the arts anything like you have to prove yourself uh, and you have to prove that you are a valuable product to society um, and that didn't go over well with my bohemian artistic friends uh, I was effectively Benny from uh, Rent and that was back when I loved Rent and thought Benny was the bad guy I, it wasn't until years later that I was like watching it again and I was like oh shit no Benny's got a lot of great points yeah no let's go ahead and get paid to do this art stuff um, don't be freeloaders stupid Mark and Roger slackers um, but yeah I love theater I got involved in the local theater scene um, going out and doing plays occasionally and stage managing stuff um, I was the uh, I was the I was on the board of directors for a company in town called Stray Cat Theater which I love very dearly um, I've seen every one of their shows seen or worked on every one of their shows for the last 10 years um, since I first started seeing uh, their work got introduced to them in college um, and was immediately hooked because they do um, what's you know typically deemed as like edgy work edgy quote unquote um, they do effectively like off off Broadway it's not they're not doing cat on a hot tin roof or um, one flew of the cuckoo's nest they're doing plays that uh, w one of my favorite experiences that I did with them was a play called the flick and it was a play it was a three-hour play and probably an hour and a half of it is just awkward silence because the play focuses on these four characters, mostly three characters. I played like the cursory fourth character that comes in later in the show. Um, uh, so it follows mostly these three characters who are uh, they're basically the the ushers in a movie theater um, in one of the last film theaters before things started going digital. Uh, and it's the conversations that they have as they're sweeping up the the aisles after uh, um, after the last show of the night kind of thing. Um, it was very had a very mixed reception when it first got produced. We were the second production of it, I believe, second or third production of it in the country. Um, but it later got awarded the Pulitzer Prize uh, for for drama for that year. So I. I cherish that memory because I've got to be in a Pulitzer Prize winning play before it won the Pulitzer Prize. I got to be in a in a professional production of it. We didn't get paid much, but we got paid. Um, and and yeah, I, like I will take that with me. I am in a in a very weird elite group of actors that have that a that have ever performed that show because it's not very often done because you basically have to build a set that is a movie theater where the audience is um, uh, the theater screen, effectively. Um, and that's a costly thing to do. Um, so yeah, it was, it, so that's, those are the kinds of things that I love to do. We also did, I mean, we also did very funny, crazy off the wall shows, like one of my other favorite experiences with them was a play called Twelfth Night of the Living Dead. And it's taking Shakespeare's Twelfth Night and throwing zombies into the mix. And so you have Viola, one of the one of Shakespeare's richest female characters, um, her ship on the way to, I think it's Illyria, wherever the wherever that show takes place, um, her ship 
gets struck by a meteorite and turns everybody on board into a zombie. So she shows up, top of the show, pretty much a zombie. Um, but everybody around her is saying their Shakespearean dialogue and responding to her as if her groans and, and moans are the lines that she actually says in, in the original Shakespeare text. Um, and slowly but surely, everybody else gets devoured, turns into zombies. Uh, it was a f just a fun show because we had a splash zone. Uh, we had a lot of kind of gore special effects. Um, I, when I got zombified, Viola bit me on the neck, and so I grabbed a, I had a squib in my hand, and I, I grabbed my neck and like burst the squib and spray the first couple rows um, with uh, with uh, blood and scream, a blood curdling scream as I get drug off stage by my hair. Um, so yeah, though that's kind of the broad spectrum of, of the stuff that Stray Cat does, and I've loved everything I've seen or done there, um, and so I served for uh, for about four years with them as a board member, um, and that was a, a, a great honor. Uh, I got to serve for two of those years as the president of the board, um, kind of help lead them in the, in the strategic plan of the future of the organization. Um, and yeah, so I, I've I've gotten to play Romeo in Romeo and Juliet. I got to choreograph um, my own fights in that in that show, my own sword fights, which was a ton of fun. Uh, I love doing stage combat stuff. Um, I got to um, uh, I got the last role that I did, uh, and the one that has kind of it didn't it didn't sour me on it at all. But I've I've kind of stepped away from theater uh, more in favor of the video game community. Uh, but the last role I got to do was I got to play McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is uh, the Jack Nicholson role, if you're familiar with the movie, the lead role of the, of the show. A, a lead role of the show. If you, I argue it's the lead role of the show, but if you, if you have an argument that Nurse Ratchet is the lead of the show, it's, I can, I can understand that justification. Um, but it was a, a great, great show, great friends that I worked on it with. Um, horrible theater space. Uh, I it's a theater in t in this town that I just uh, do not. They they are the they are what I hate about community theater because they basically put all their money into their children's theater, um, but they do this adults theater stuff on the side um, to you know bolster their credibility within the community. But um, actors are treated like crap. The tech is treated like crap the space itself uh it was like we opened during the monsoon season and final dress water is dripping down into our theater because they they jipping uh, through the lights in our theater and risking electrocuting us on stage and our preview audience uh, because they just didn't put any money into it they just put it all into the children's side of the theater and uh and yeah it just uh, I hate that theater. I'm not going to name names, but it's not too hard to find. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I just, they are the epitome of what I don't like about community theater. Whereas Stray Cat treats everybody like a professional. They treat everybody using the actor's equity guidelines, and, and you get breaks at certain intervals, and you, um, they, like Stray Cat goes above and beyond and provides food and water and, and stuff to their actors, to make up for the fact that we can't, we couldn't pay them all that much, 
you know you get a gas stipend um, but the arts are not you're, you're not going to make money in the arts in Phoenix especially in the last 10 years basically since the uh, the economic collapse happened I've watched theater after theater after theater close and it's just really disheartening to see because it's it's almost always been bad management has led to the death of the arts in Phoenix there are a few companies still going but it's we've been hemorrhaging for years and so I've I just have grown so weary of fighting that fight that I have walked away for the for the time being I still go out and see shows I still I still support Stray Cat um, but it's it's a it's a battle and it's a it's a battle that we've for the most part lost but there's hope in the theater world as a whole and maybe in one of these other episodes I'll I don't know, I'll delve into my love of Hamilton as the the potential saving grace of the future of the theater because um, that is a phenomenal show Lin-Manuel Miranda is one of the most creative artistic geniuses of our time and uh, I wish nothing but success for him I hope I can see the show Hamilton at some point in time and not bankrupt myself doing it uh, until then I will just continue to listen to to the show ad nauseum always hearing new things always loving new things about it um, and appreciating that it is reinvigorating the arts in our society that have recently fallen on okay let's find a movie from the 80s to remake into a musical uh, or let's remount Cats again or Phantom of the Opera or Les Mis uh, let's do the millionth version of Shakespeare but not really add anything new to it um, let's just do you know well let's just do a gender gender swapped Shakespeare and it's like uh, I've seen three of those I've seen uh, uh, so I've grown weary of uh, the arts and the pretension in the arts and I think that's why the pretentious audience still is out there supporting Hamilton, and that's why it's it's atrocious that there are tickets going for that show for like twelve hundred dollars because the audience that needs to see Hamilton to fall in love with theater and think and 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 provide a future for theater does not have twelve hundred dollars to spend on a Hamilton ticket. Uh, you, that is a show that needs to be out there for everybody to see. It needs to be accessible. It needs to be well produced. Um, but there's there's hope when that especially when it goes on tour especially especially when it when the rights get released and it can be done in communities um, that's where I think you're going to see uh, a reinvigoration of the arts in America so there's hope and yeah that's that's theater that's my love sometimes hate of theater and uh, it's another one where I I wouldn't be I wouldn't be able to sit here and talk for an hour or however long I've been going now probably an hour and a half two hours I don't know hour 15 minutes whatever um, I I owe my experience in theater to that I owe my ability to go with the flow and improvise and and just kind of yeah uh, take take things in stride when everything else goes wrong because that's like 
from my first shows in theater, from uh, from Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, there were there would be cases where somebody would forget a prop, and I would have to. It was an essential prop that I refer to in this scene, and I would have to ad lib in Shakespearean tongue uh, uh, the the dialogue that I was supposed to read from this scroll or something like that, um, covering for other people. Uh, Covering, helping, helping your cast out when somebody goes up on a line. Uh, that's, I, I'm the kind of person that when something went wrong, I then think of all the other things that can go wrong and come up with contingency plans for them. But eventually, I also just shift to, well, whatever happens, we're gonna make it. We're gonna figure it out. We're gonna, we're gonna proceed. Um, and it's not just me. It's uh, like so many people in that I've worked with over the years have been able to do that and cover for me when I go up on a line or something. So um, it's it's an incredibly collaborative medium that I'm incredibly grateful for because it has helped make me who I am and, and bring me to, uh, to the ability to potentially do this, do this thing that I'm doing, go out there, entertain people, um, think critically. Oh, God, that's... I... Theater, if nothing else, theater helped me be an empathetic person and see the world from so many other viewpoints. Um, and made that's there's always these these articles will always get thrown around. These studies will show that you know oh the arts um, you know the arts are good for community financially, but it's the ones where the arts make you a better person uh, that always hit home with me because they teach you to be they teach you empathy they teach you literally putting yourself in somebody else's shoes in a, in a role um, seeing stories that you wouldn't otherwise see told um, experiencing art uh, it's yeah uh, it it made me who I am I even if I never do another show um, I will always remember fondly even the shit times I had um, in horrible shows with horrible directors that I just wanted to punch in the face um, I will I, I, I made incredible friends I had incredible experiences and I am a better person because of the theater that I did in my life um, and the, the experiences I've had there so I think that that's a good note to end theater on. Theater. Jazz hands. For those of you listening, I'm doing jazz hands and spirit fingers. It's mostly spirit fingers. Um, you're not missing anything. Don't don't watch this. It's you who are watching it, you're fools. Anyway, uh, final topic, trove topics. Going through, uh, I've, I've collected, thank you to everybody who submitted some trove topics for this first pilot episode. Uh, I'm gonna go go through them now. Uh, just kind of answer some some kind of rapid fire questions. Um, the first one I got when I first launched uh, my kind of introductory video for the show, uh, Chelsea Wilkerson at Chelsea from ATX reached out and said, "How do you feel you've grown between day one hundred uh, day day one and day three hundred? What made you realize YouTube was the next step?" Now, this is in reference to my day three hundred celebration post talking about how I've written every day for 300 days and writing 
uh, I, I, the next steps for me for the site are uh, video and audio while still doing some writing on the side. Um, for the first one, how do I feel I've grown between day one and day 300? Um, I, I think I've gotten um, discipline. I think doing it every day, um, and especially early on, forcing myself to do it every day, and then forcing myself to do it when I felt like there was nothing new to add to the conversation, nothing new to say. Coming up, it's it's th those days certainly stretched my creative muscles, where I would say, okay, there's no big news story to to respond to. I haven't had time to play a game recently because of the time it takes to to write some of these pieces. Um, I have so I haven't finished a game. I don't have anything I can review quite yet. So what do I write on those days where I've got nothing to write about? Where what do I write where I I'm just sitting there staring at a blank screen for um, for 15, 20 minutes? Uh, and so coming up with ideas like uh, a few weeks ago, I wrote a, tr a trilogy of of pieces on um, characters I love, which I will probably. Uh, try and continue as a recurring segment every now and then. Uh, and I wrote about uh, Terra, Locke, and Celeste from Final Fantasy VI and why those characters resonated with me and why they are characters in video games that I love. Um, I... I don't... It's... Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I don't, I really don't know if I'm a better writer than I was 300 days ago. Um, uh, I, I feel like, I feel like because I'd been writing for years doing theater and, and, and sketch comedy and, and stuff like that, and, and just kind of writing off on my own, um, I felt like I hit the ground running a little bit when I eventually did it. Uh, but I'm sure, I'm sure there has been some, I'm sure if I went back and looked at some of those early pieces, I would, I would say, oh, I've got. I found my voice at some point throughout there. Um, like the, I like I love bringing in my analytical side of things. It's in my daylight in my day to day life. I'm a database manager and I've, I I run analytics reports and, and grants analysis and, and giving analysis and and, uh, and stuff like that. And so I love putting together kind of projections. And so the when I'm talking about NPD numbers or um, or what's selling best on, on PlayStation this month. Those are some of my weirdly favorite um, moments, uh, kinds of pieces to write, because it, I'm getting to kind of bring in that business side of my of my life um, and, and come up with, you know, completely off-the-wall predictions. I definitely feel like I've probably, I can, I can identify and lean into maybe some strengths, uh, like uh, one of my one of my consistently best performing types of pieces is when I go to an event and cover the event and do like my daily recaps of something which I'll be doing for packs here. It'll, they'll already be up by the time you're you're hearing or seeing this. Um, uh, but writing kind of daily, this is what ha this is what I did today. Like effectively just journaling. But people who want to go to these ex experiences and can't. Um, uh, often reach out and, and talk about how they, how much they appreciate living vicariously through through me in those experiences. So I guess um, I, I've become better at telling those stories, um, telling a story, and, and being able to put something, put yourself in those shoes. Um, 
So we'll go with that. That's a long answer for that for that first half of the question. As far as what made me realize YouTube was the next step, um, I realized that actually probably like a month and a half ago, and it was, I was a, uh, I, I. It was on one of those days, I'm sure, where it was I have nothing new to to write because there was no. It's we're in the doldrums of the summer, and there was no news coming out, um, and so what am I going? Why am I spending two hours to write? you know, this piece that 10, 15 people are going to, uh, check out and read, um, when I, when the future of the industry is and has been for a long time, video content and, and let's plays and Twitch streaming. And it's, it's just rare that people, people don't go to websites and read nowadays. They go to YouTube, they watch the five minute video, they watch the review, they don't read the review necessarily, they scroll down to the bottom and see see what number it is. Um, and I don't I don't begrudge them that necessarily. Um, and there are certainly some people out there that still read and I'm incredibly grateful for the people who've who've read my work over the over the year. Um, but I when I go to things like PAX and go to a panel and they say you know how do I get in the gaming industry it's all it's it's not right it's make sure you can do video stuff make sure you can edit um, edit a podcast make sure you can edit a video um, have those skill sets make sure you can be on camera you can do video content um, because that's what sites can monetize um, you know everybody's got ad blocker or if you don't have ad blocker you're not clicking on the ads on an IGN or on a GameSpot, um, so they're just sitting on the background. Sites make very little money doing that. They make their money in the video ads um, that, that play in the lead up to a video or, or that get baked into a video. So um, that's where the money is, so that's where the content needs to be effectively. It's just our the, the culture, the post-YouTube culture. Um, so that's where, that's that's when I decided, and I ultimately it was like, okay, so I want to make this shift, but I want to make an event out of this shift, and so I looked at my where I was in my my don't break the chain, and it was probably in like the two sixties, two seventies. I was like, well, I'll I'll go ahead and start getting the the equipment now. I'll get the I'll get the Adobe, um, and and hopefully I'll start being able to learn it. Ideally, I wanted to have on day 300 a big like blowout and say, okay, here's video content now that you can so you can see where I'm I'm looking at. Um, but in just in the day to day of spending three hours a night writing a piece and then a couple hours maybe trying to play a game so that I could eventually write a review of that game, uh, I just haven't had the time to do the the next steps that I wanted to do. Um, it's also and that's the other thing is that it takes. It takes a long time to to put together a written piece, comparatively to a video or just talking um, into a microphone. Uh, and I ultimately I I just didn't have the time or didn't have the patience to go through and, and edit something. Once I was done, I was just ready to I, I I finished something. I felt good about it. I know I said the things I wanted to say, so I'd hit publish and then I'd go back and read it a few days later and and look and and see rife with errors and spelling errors and grammar mistakes and and I I didn't like that I want to the the grind of pumping something out every day while great to give me that discipline um, I think the work suffered for it as a result and again as I was saying it it's not the work 
it's not the work that's going to get me hired at places, unfortunately. Um, I, I will continue doing it. I love doing it. I love writing. Um, that's where my heart is. But uh, if I really want to get out there and work at an IGN uh, or a GameSpot or a Kotaku or something, uh, I need to do more. Um, Kotaku maybe not. I could potentially get hired at a Kotaku as just a writer, but I'm not going to chance it. Adding adding these skill sets opens up my uh, my resume, uh, so that's that's what made me realize YouTube was the next step. Um, it's it's the the hope is basically take do something every day mantra and then just put it in a place where people will actually go check it out and and I can build that audience because um, I I have slowly but surely built an audience uh, in the in the written content, but I'll also put up a video and that will get more views than anything that I've done for weeks. Um, so it's, yeah, that's, that's where, that's where this all came from. Thank you for the question, Chelsea. Um, uh, Brienne at Miss Movies <laughs> asks, uh, can, uh, can we say it or can we ask about anything, any topic? How about death, Deathstroke? So Deathstroke um, got released as some or teased as some footage this this week. Um, looked cool. Uh, I'm excited for Deathstroke as a character. Um, I have I admittedly have very little faith in the DC cinematic universe um, because they're just not the all of the stuff I learned in theater. They're basically just spitting on it so much of it, and it it hurts my soul when I go and see some of these DC movies. It doesn't mean they're not fun. It doesn't mean you can't like it. I don't. I have issues with the just the base storytelling style and uh, and editing of those movies. Um, but Deathstroke, at least because of his mercenary background, fits in the ground in the grounded nature of the the world. So um, I I'm fully behind Deathstroke as a villain. Um, I, I've never really been much of a comics person, but I, um, I enjoyed comic book movies and video games and stuff, and so my biggest um, interactions or experiences with Deathstroke are from Arrow, uh, his season two arc, which was great. Manu, Manu Bennett did a great job uh, playing him in that. Uh, it's a shame that it looks like the movies basically snatched up the character, so we're probably not going to get him back on Arrow anytime soon. Um, and then uh, he was easily the best best fight and best part of Arkham Origins, Batman Arkham Origins, um, that game. And then sadly wasted in Batman Arkham Knight. Um, but uh, yeah, I, so I, I'm all for Deathstroke. Um, I feel like it was the teasiest of teases, so I... I don't really have much to say about whatever the Batfleck version of it is going to be, but I'm hopeful it's good. I'm hopeful it it reinvigorates the franchise. We'll see. Greg, aka Mr. Lizard, at Great Mr. Lizard, asks, I'm curious to hear your opinion on how PS Now affects the PlayStation brand. Um, up until this week when they released uh, PlayStation Now on computers, on PC, um, I felt like it was a an interesting thing uh, to put older system, older games like in on your on your console because I certainly don't um, pull out my PS3 
um, even though I've got it literally right here. Grabbing it for the, the camera. Oh, it's still got plugged in and stuff. Got it right here on my on my desk for some reason. Um, but I definitely don't. I haven't booted it up really since uh, in probably over a year now. Um, since I had the craving to replay through Fallout 3 last year. Um, so having PlayStation Now and being able to play PlayStation 3 games or, or earlier games on, uh, on a PS4 um, or now on PC, um, it's good in theory. It's not anything... I. In, in my nature and, and in the nature of this industry where I'm, I'm trying to always kind of be on top of whatever's now and whatever's current so I can be part of the conversation when the most people are having that conversation, it doesn't do anything for me uh, because I don't have the luxury of really much, having much time to go back to old, older games or, or replaying older experiences or, or catching things that I missed in that regard. Um, but for people who are more... Um, who play at a more leisurely pace? Um, it's great that you know you could go, you could pick up. Uh, was it Nino Kuni was one of the ones I think that just got released on it. I have that game. I don't think I ever pulled it out of the wrappers or the wrapping, um, but I've heard nothing but good things about it. It seems like it would be right up my alley, but I'm not about to go plug in my PS3 to um, to boot it up, and and so I would conceivably play it on PlayStation now. If I had the time and the, the the luxury to afford going back and playing old games, but with a full-time job and trying to keep up to date on everything else here with Trevor Trove and Trove Talk, um, it's just not really in the cards for me. In terms of PlayStation brand and people being able to to play those games without having um, uh, without having a console on PC now, um, it's it's nice. I don't think you're going to get too many people doing that. Um, I, I think most of the people who are, I, you know, I don't think you're going to get. Yeah, I just don't think you're going to get much of that. Um, I don't really know what else to to add there. Uh, Cameron Abbott at Unsexiest Comedy, also at Naughty Gamers, and that's K N O T T Y Gamers, um, asks, "Who is your perfect video game love interest?" Uh, I I lean towards probably the Final Fantasy 4 through Final Fantasy 9 era um, female protagonists so your your uh, your Terra or your Celeste um, in Final Fantasy 6 your Rosa Rydia in uh, I had a big old crush on Rydia in Final Fantasy 4 um, which at the time was fine because she was a kid she starts out as a kid I was a kid when I first played it um, now it's a little creepy but she also does that weird thing where she goes into the the uh, the underworld, the sum summon world, and magically grows up really fast. So it's not as creepy that you've got a crush on like a six year old. Um, uh, but yeah, her her being the summon uh, the summoner and, uh, and her green hair uh, for whatever reason that did it for me back then. Um, but like Tifa's a great go to. I was never a huge Eris or Aerith person. Um, but Tifa, um, as the as like the friend next door, that was, you know, the, I, the those were, those are the girls that I have the crushes on. The the friend next door gets me in trouble. But um, yeah, uh, we can skip over Final Fantasy VIII because screw that game. Um, 
but uh, Garnet or Dagger in uh, in Final Fantasy IX is another solid choice. So yeah, pretty much any of, any of those ladies, um, strong, powerful women uh, with ambition, goals, and ambition, um, saving the world. It's always a always a plus. Zyger at Zyger one three three seven asks many things. Um, first up, what is your opinion on Domino's cheesy breadsticks? I have none. And Burger King chicken fries? I know you love them. They're okay. They're fine. Whatever. Uh, Zyger asks again, and then uh, Alexandru Felker at Lost in Thought with an underscore in the middle of thought for the O asks. Um, how long do you think Sony can go without a, tri a big AAA game in the fall since uh, Gran Turismo got delayed? Relying on third, Are they relying on third party too much? I know it hasn't been a problem in the past, but there hasn't been a single one since launch. Can Sony continue to do this? And then Alex added, uh, I got a second Zyger here. Do you think they can uh, especially do this with, uh, with Microsoft games coming out this fall? Um, this might be a controversial stance, but I think they can... I think they're better off not having big games in the fall because having all their games, and I did a little bit of research um, for this question, so you had Xbox it, so in 2013 you had Xbox's big fall lineup back at launch kind of being Rise, Son of Rome, Forza Motorsports 5, and Dead Rising 3 were three of their big titles that came out uh, right then, and then Sony had Knack, Killzone, Shadowfall, and they were supposed to have Infamous Second Son, and that got bumped 2014 Xbox had Sunset Overdrive, Halo Master Chief Collection, uh, Forza Horizon 2. Sony was going to have The Order, that got bumped. Xbox had Halo 5 uh, in 2015, Rise of the Tomb Raider, Forza Motorsport 6, uh, and then Sony had Uncharted 4, which got bumped. Uh, and then this year, 2016, you've got Xbox uh, has Gears 4 coming up, they've got Forza Horizon 3, um, they've got uh, ReCore to a lesser extent, and I think those are the big ones. And then you had Sony with Horizon Zero Dawn and now Gran Turismo, both of which, Gran Turismo Sport, both of which have been bumped to uh, to next year. Um, I don't think it's going to hurt Sony at all. I think it helps Sony because all of those Xbox... I mean, historically, we already can see that it hasn't really helped Xbox having a plethora of, of fall titles um, because they just got so burned by their pre-launch me messaging that Sony has been the runaway uh, freight train, um, even without exclusives to play. I don't think we don't live in, a, in an era now unless you're Nintendo where exclusives are system sellers. Um, at least not to that extent. The biggest example we've probably seen from it this generation was Halo 5 for the Xbox and I'm sure Gears will do it this, uh, this year, but Gears was going to do it anyway, even over um, Horizon, had Horizon come out at that time, or had uh, Gran Turismo come out this fall. Um, Gears Gears and Halo are at a level above anything Sony exclusive have ever really been, so of course those are going to be quote-unquote system sellers, um, but I don't think, I think Sony having, having to push their stuff into the spring of the following year um, ends up giving them a more sustained push year-round because there are plenty of things to play in the fall. Um, uh, you, you have games like Sunset Overdrive or Rise of the Tomb Raider getting drowned out by, um, by your Call of Duties and your Fallouts, um, which people will play on whatever system um, 
they have, and so if they have, if they're if if everybody else has the PlayStation, they're going to go ahead and get those system uh, those those games on PlayStation. Um, so I don't think I think Xbox is probably going to with uh, de- depending on what happens with the Neo, if that ends up coming out this year, I think Xbox is probably going to win the the last couple of months of this year. Um, we've already seen them with when they dumped the price of the original Xbox down to like 250 they won uh, July's NPD sales um, uh, they're probably going to win August with the launch of the Xbox uh, S uh, Sony if they come out next month and launch uh, the slim model uh, basically on on that day with the with the, the PlayStation event um, there's a good chance Sony will take back uh, September but then October November December Xbox, because they have a Gears, um, depending on pricing of everything, they could easily take it back, or the Neo could take it. So I don't think it's I don't think it's game centric these days. I think, um, at least not to the extent that it that it has been in the past. Again, unless you're like a Nintendo, um, like a Zelda or a Mario or a Smash or a Mario Kart or a system seller, um, but not really nothing on on very much fewer titles on the Xbox or the Sony side of things um, so yeah I don't, I don't think I don't think having uh, or missing missing fall games hurts them because that's when everybody else that's yeah go ahead and let Activision and um, Bethesda and and everybody else launch their games in the fall people are going to buy the systems that they're going to buy those games on anyway. So that's why you see Sony aligning with Call of Duty and with Bungie for Destiny um, to, to really try and, even though those multi-platform games can be played anywhere, they're trying to get them, they're, they're trying to partner and get people to play it on PlayStation, and that's what is more likely selling those consoles than necessarily, than the order ever would have sold. Um, for example, had it launched in in the fall of 2014. Um, yeah, uh, Christian at Pixel Brave uh, responded to my tweet saying, "What is this a real thing? I didn't get a press release about it." Yes, Christian, Trove Talk is a real thing. Assuming this video or audio ever made it to the light of day, uh, and I didn't somehow break everything. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> Trove Talk is a real thing uh, and is really happening. Uh, Zyger asks one last question um, if quitters never win and winners never quit and who was the idiot that came up with quit while you're ahead I don't agree with the premise of your question Zyger I think quitters uh, win all the time and winners quit all the time so quitting while you're ahead uh, is is can happen that's yeah any of those can happen and any of them uh, in in adverse can happen. Uh, so as far as the idiot who came up with it, uh, I don't know, probably probably somebody who was winning at the time in life. Yeah. Uh, Frank Bazzani at Irrelevant Jokes, asks, what's it like to be the father to a bunch of idiots on the internet? Uh, Daddy Trevor takes a toll on, uh, on, on a person. Being Having to be responsible for people like Zyger is rough. There's certainly 
there's certainly some moments where there's there's a bit of pride absolutely but a lot of times you guys are really stupid and you say stupid things and I just don't know how to get through to you makes me very scared for when I have actual kids I hope they're not as dumb as you guys but I'm sure I'll love them just as much um, Brandon at Google My House asks, how much laundry do you do a week? Can that be a question? Because the original tweet was basically saying, hey, I'm doing laundry, but then I'm going to go ahead and record, record this episode. As far as how much laundry I do a week, uh, I typically let laundry build up for a week or two. Um, and then I go downstairs. I'm lucky and have a, uh, uh, I live in a complex that has the, like the laundry room is basically right downstairs from me. And they've got four washers and dryers, so I can usually let things pile up for a couple weeks and then just get everything done in about an hour and a half. Just fill up three of the washers and then do that for a half hour, then go down, switch over to the dryer, let those run for another 45 minutes, and then come back up and hang and fold stuff. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I do about a half a load a week, if, uh, uh, or, uh, yeah, a half, a half a trip a week if we're going and saying that. Um, after two weeks, I'd, I'm doing like one trip uh, downstairs to the laundromat. Adam Wells at the Adam Wells asks, "Should Nala be considered a Disney princess?" I say yes. I see no reason for her not to be. Uh, she is the Lion Queen. So actually, I guess maybe not. Yeah, she wasn't. She wasn't really a princess um, in uh, in Simba's herd or Mufasa's herd. So. So uh, yeah, no, I just I just talked myself out of that. No, Nala is not a Disney princess; she is a queen. But I don't think she was a, a princess in the herd. Sorry, sorry, Nala. Sorry, it's not a it's not a lioness thing. It's it's a you just weren't royalty until you were the queen, kind of thing. Mario Piquado Piquadio Piquadio. I was so I was so hoping I was going to get your name right, Mario. And I'm pretty sure it's Piaquadio, but I screwed it up the first couple times. Oops, and I just hit the mic, so I'm really sorry, audio listeners. My bad. Um, Mario Piaquadio at Mario Not Bros asks, "When will I guest?" Winky face. J.K. For real. What are your thoughts on this whole shitstorm that uh, Final Fantasy 15 has been? Uh, when will you guest? You're already on the list, Mario. I had you on the list before you tweeted at me. Um, so I'll be reaching out to you in in the coming weeks, I'm sure. Um, as far as Final Fantasy XV, I've, uh, I've written a couple pieces on it in the last few weeks. Um, I have long lost faith in Square Enix. In, uh, in the Final Fantasy VI is my favorite game. The last Final Fantasy game I re I liked was Final Fantasy X. Final Fantasy XII, I was not a fan of. Final Fantasy Thirteen I hated. And then the, the follow-ups, I hated. Um, so the fact that at its core, this game that's been in development for ten years is still part of the Final Fantasy Thirteen universe, even though it's not, quote-unquote. Uh, I was looking at the trailers recently, and it's... I mean, like, the things they started showing about that game ten years ago, and then when they started showing gameplay, like, five years ago, still looks kind of like what they're showing now. Um, so I don't have faith for it. 
I feel, and I've, I've felt this way for a long time, that Square and Final Fantasy are much more interested in creating very beautiful cinematic experiences in their cutscenes uh, than they are in creating interesting characters and an interesting story and a dynamic story. They're interested in creating very pretty things with uh, without much substance behind it. So as far as the game itself, I have very little faith on that. Um, as far as all of the insanity of having a crazy spectacle of an event and saying we're launching on September 30th and then coming out a month before that should happen and saying we're not launching on September 30th, we're launching on November 29th. Uh, that's, I, like, I don't wish ill on people, but I hope somebody got fired for that because that uh, is just embarrassing. And I wrote that, I wrote there were a number of things that I think they, that Square Enix didn't need to do with this game uh, to, to have gotten it, uh, to have hit that September 30th date. Uh, you didn't need to patch the demo that you released a couple years ago. You didn't need to create a new demo to release at that event. Uh, you didn't need to create the VR experience. Um, and you probably didn't need to start setting the, the groundwork for your DLC plans in the season pass before you finished, you know, the regular game. Uh, so I imagine if those if resources hadn't been poured into those other things, I feel like they probably could have gotten what they needed to get in term and in this game. Again, I, you know, I as as always, I don't know the intricacies of of game development, but I'm pretty sure that's a safe bet that if those things hadn't happened and they had those resources um, devoted to the game itself, we wouldn't have seen yet another delay. As far as why I think this game has been in the works for 10 years, um, going back to my comment on on uh, Square Enix making very pretty games, I think they've been chasing tech for 10 years. I think they had the core framework of the game 10 years ago, eight years ago, whenever, and, uh, and then murmurings of the new systems probably started happening, or they decided to say, okay, well, we can get more power out of this system, out of the, the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. Um, and so they probably went back to the drawing board just to make those cutscenes prettier and did it again and again and again and just always trying to make it look as good as it can um, without really fixing anything else with the game. So I imagine... Now that it's on this generation of systems, it's probably a bigger game, and they probably played more with the open world than they probably would have. Um, but I'm guessing most of the delays that, that have surrounded this game have just been um, chasing the prettiest looking version of the game that they can get. And finally, um, the, uh, the investors said, no, you don't get any more time with this. You're, you're releasing this game. We need this game out. We need to... This game isn't going to make its money back. Um, it's, yeah, it's been too long in development. I'm sure too many, too many people have been paid too much money for this game to, even if it sells, you know, 5 million copies, 10 million copies, 20 million copies. 
Maybe if it sells 20 million copies, it'll make its money back. But this isn't going to be a game that sells 20 million copies. Um, so, those are my thoughts on Final Fantasy 15. That was the last uh, last question. Thank you, everybody, who asked questions. Um, if you want to be part of the Trove Topics, um, you can always tweet out uh, at Snarky Starkey or at Trove Talk uh, and use the hashtag Trove Topics. Um, uh, moving forward, this will be kind of a uh, a segment where I can have where I can discuss these topics with my guest as well. So uh, that's the show. That's the pilot episode of Trove Talk. Uh, near in two hours. Uh, I talk a lot, apparently. Ramble a lot. There's probably a lot of uhs in there. Sorry if that's the thing that, that drives you crazy. I'll try and be better about cutting out those filler words in the future. But I like to put my thoughts together. And uh ends up going in there as filler because silence is not always golden. And now I've just stared awkwardly at the camera for a little bit too long, uncomfortably, without breaking eye contact. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up there. Thank you, everybody, for watching, listening, whatever you did. Subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe, like. I don't know where this is going to be audio-wise. I'm sure probably SoundCloud, maybe eventually iTunes. So like, subscribe, review, comment. Do all those things that you do in social media things that now I need to start actually identifying and, and saying and encouraging people to do. Share. Share with your friends. Do that thing. Help me build an audience for Trevor Trove and Trove Talk. Yay! Doing a little dance. Anyway, thank you everybody for watching, listening, whatever you did. I'm Trevor Starkey. This was the pilot episode of Trove Talk, and I will be back next time with hopefully a really awesome guest to hear their gaming history and favorite games and learn about them as well. Until next time, insert closing tag here. <laughs>